Good morning, everyone. I am so grateful to be here with you all again. Uh, my family and I have been in Hawaii uh, visiting my wife's family. We had our flights canceled twice, but we finally made it. And uh, I don't mean to uh, make you feel bad or anything, but the weather was, was really good. Uh, you guys should come next time. We can all stay at my in-law's place. Uh, no, I truly did miss you, and I'm really glad to be back, even if the weather here is uh, simply um, inferior. Um, <laughs> y'all look really good. You look like you're all fulfilling your New Year's resolutions. Y'all look really fit and well-read and holy. <laughs> How many of you uh, did what my wife and I did, and you got gym memberships for the new year? Gym? No? Oh, okay. All right, we got one. Um, if you're anything like me, you'll probably cancel those memberships in March, right? <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm not going to go to the gym. Um <laughs> I love New Year's resolutions. I love making goals. I love planning and dreaming, honestly, probably more than I like actually following through on those goals. Um, anyone with me on that? Come on, don't leave me hanging. <laughs> it's going to be a rough morning if that's going to be the case. Obviously, following through on goals and commitments is really important, but sometimes I wonder if the how we go about following through on those commitments is actually more important than the goals themselves. Because sometimes we can make or meet a goal but totally miss the point, right? Like if we think about fitness, like if we go uh, trying to lose weight or go on a diet, right? We can, we can meet a goal, we can see a number on the scale, but if we haven't picked up healthier habits with staying power, they're gonna make us be healthier in the life that we have in front of us, what did we really accomplish, right? I think in the same way, when it comes to our faith, uh, Jesus is probably far less concerned about what you can do for him and he's probably far more concerned with how and why you go about doing it. Like we fast and we pray, not because we want to get good at fasting and praying. We fast and we pray because we want to connect with God. You know, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is how Jesus followers go about their lives. There are a lot of things that Jesus followers do things differently than the people around us. This is true. We have rhythms of worship and prayer, and we have certain moral convictions and um, uh, charity. But there's also a lot of things that Christians do that everyone else does too. Like we pay rent and we go to work and we shop at Target and we have birthday parties and we go to theme parks. And sometimes I think it's, it's, it's not what we are doing as much as it is, is how we are doing it which will exhibit the heart of Christ in us. Even if the, we look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, right? It reads, go and make disciples of all nations, but a more accurate verbiage for this translation would probably be, as you are going. Some of us are called by God to, like, go to distant places and do really epic things on a large scale. This is true. And many of us in our lives will have these moments, these epic moments in our lives, but most of us, most of the time, are going to live very simple, ordinary, and yet truly beautiful lives. And it's the, as we are going, that's going to matter more than where we go. And whatever we do, we do it, and we show people to, uh, how, how we live in order to emulate Christ. It's how we do it. Now, what you are doing for the kingdom of heaven is really, really important. Whether it be nursing or studying or teaching or farming, coding, administrating, healing, protecting, etc. But the way in which you go about doing that thing is going to shine more than the thing itself, right? How well you love the people you work with, 
how patiently you deal with the hardships that you face, the kindness that you exhibit towards the people that don't deserve it, will leave a more lasting impact than the projects that you complete or the deadlines that you meet or the products that you produce, right? So this year, as we step into 2023, I want us to reflect and pray together, right? How can we be children of God who are transformed in the how of what we do, of what God has us doing? How can we be present to the presence of God in everything that God sets before us from the mundane to the exceptional? And that's what our new series is all about. We're starting today a six-week study in the book of Philippians called Grace and Peace. The question is, in whatever you are doing, especially in all the things that everyone else does, how are we doing it? From shopping, talking, playing, working, voting, how do people experience us as we go about these things? Because there are some words that I would use to characterize the how of our culture, right? There's words like angry, impatient, critical, cynical, divisive, incendiary, mistrusting, insecure, anxious. Our nation is in the middle of a real mental health crisis. And as we draw closer to the 2024 election season, these harmful patterns of how are only going to get worse. So the question is, how are we as people who follow Jesus going to be different? We are invited to be people who walk in grace and peace. You know, when I I was first invited to join the team at Red Hills, I remember receiving my first few emails from the staff people here, from Kate specifically. And if you notice, whenever you get an email from any of us, the signature on the bottom always reads grace and peace. This has been a, a greeting and a blessing for Christians for thousands of years. And I actually remember the first time that someone spoke it over me, verbally, as a blessing. There was something really special about it about receiving this blessing as a form of greeting. It was connected to Christ. It was connected to the Spirit in this person. It was connected to our history as Christians. We don't get a lot of this in our Western culture, right? Grace grace and peace is not just a nice-sounding phrase. It's a blessing. And this is something we really truly want for our church, to be reminded of God's blessing in our lives, to embrace the meaning of our lives from a kingdom perspective, to become mindful of who we truly are in this world, to be reformed in the how we go about the things that everyone else does, dressed in grace and peace. Because in our exceedingly anxious and angry world, if there's anything I know I need of more in my life, it's grace and peace. And in this book of Philippians, the letter opens, like many of Paul's epistles, with this blessing, grace and peace. Now this word grace is the Greek word charis, which means uh, delight which comes from the influence of God on one's heart and reflected in one's life. Isn't that beautiful? Delight which comes from the influence of God on one's heart and is reflected in one's life. And the word for peace is the Greek irene, which means harmonious relationships absent of the rage and havoc of war. So when we say grace and peace to you, what we're really saying to one another is, may you experience delight that comes only from God for you and through you. And may your relationships be harmonious and free of rage. That's what we're asking. So before we jump into chapter one, let's talk a bit about what the book of Philippians even is. We call it a book of the Bible, but this epistle is actually a letter. 
It's written by the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians until he met Jesus, radically transformed, and then he became one of the most respected leaders and pastors in the early church. He was a missionary to a very large area throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's writing this letter to a church in a city called Philippi. Now, about 80% of your New Testament is made up of letters like this one, which is actually kind of weird, right? That your Bible is made up of letters. At the time, it would have been really unprecedented for a religious community to document and canonize its letters from its leaders as works of theology and teaching. It was unique to Christians at this time. But because Paul was an apostle, he was someone who had been um, uh, transformed, and had, who had met Jesus, the early church regarded Paul's writings as authoritative. But even so, the, he probably did not likely think that his personal letters to the people that he loved in the churches that he loved were going to be canonized in the scriptures. But this is actually of benefit to us because we get to be the recipients of theology and teaching that is both of its feet firmly planted in the dirt we all walk in every day, directed at real-life people with real-life problems. These aren't just academic essays. These aren't words that are just floating above us in ideals. They are words that are targeted at specific people. They are tangible truths that we can mine to figure out the value for us. Now, in the ancient world, the average personal letter was about 100 to 200 words. Paul's average letter was about 2,500, sometimes went as high as 7,000. So he had a lot to say, and he thought that it was important that he say it. And the style of these letters were meant to be written out loud, or sorry, uh, read, meant to be read out loud. Now get this, the church in Philippi was probably around 30 to 40 people. Think about that. All of the Christians in the city were about 30 to 40 people, and they would gather in people's homes, and these letters would be read out loud. It'd be like if, if someone wrote to the church and they just said, like, Steve, blessings to you. And Steve's in the room hearing this about himself in the letter. Now, because these letters are specific to specific people, it does not mean that they aren't for us. They are. They were canonized and they were passed down to, to Christians for generations because they do hold a lot of value for us today. Let's talk about Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, which is a little bit different than just being like a city in the Roman Empire like Jerusalem. Because in Philippi, uh, it, was, it was more than a territory of the empire. People uh, in Philippi were, were, a lot of them benefited from Roman citizenship. They were taxed less. They uh, had access to public libraries. They were even allowed special forms of entertainment. And uh, Philippi was a popular community for the retired Roman military. It was strategically placed on a common trade route, so it was diverse in its influence, including when it came to religion. The traditional Greek and Roman gods were worshipped a lot there, as well as all kinds of other idols that were brought in from the trade route. And then, of course, the empire cult uh, uh, was alive and, and well, as, uh, alive and well as well. <laughs> uh, Caesar is Lord was the gospel of Rome, right? So in this world, there's a God for everything, and any problem that you have, whether it be fertility or wanting to get more money or whatever, you go to a specific God, you make a specific sacrifice, do a specific ritual to get a specific blessing. Now, side note, we live in a very secularized society that's very different from the religiously diverse culture of Philippi. But humans have not ceased to be worshiping creatures. We have been and will always be. It's just that our uh, worshiping energies have been diverted and dispersed into different pathways, right? 
We have all kinds of places where we give our time, our money, our affection, our worth, which is what worship is. We give these things to all kinds of entities and people that we think will solve our problems. Things have changed a lot, but they really haven't changed very much. And the Greco-Roman world was steeped in uh, honor culture, right? Honor culture meant that the community dynamics were dictated by a person's social standing, right? Everything was about who you were and what you accomplished. Nijay Gupta says, all Romanized people experienced a single-minded, all-consuming zeal to acquire and demonstrate their status and honor, no matter their social level or occupation. And this is actually a really important point, to think about this culture of honor as the currency, because choosing Jesus really cost these people a lot in terms of their honor. So what, what is Paul's relationship to the Philippians? Well, we actually read all about Paul's first visit to Philippi in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, Paul visits Philippi, and there he evangelizes a woman named Lydia, who's a business owner, very successful. And then he encounters a woman with the spirit of divination. She's kind of like a fortune teller. And he casts the demon out of her, which makes the business owners that are manipulating her for her talents to make money, makes them very upset. So Paul and his buddy Silas, they get thrown in prison. And this is a very popular story. In prison, they start singing and worshiping Jesus, and an earthquake shakes the, the walls of the prison, the chains fall off, and instead of escaping the prison, they evangelize the prison guard. Now, eventually, they realize that they're dealing with two Roman citizens that have not been given due process. Whoops. So they apologize, but they still ask them to leave the city. So Paul has beef with the leaders in this community. The Christian community that he's instigated in Philippi is stirring up all kinds of controversy, especially in regards to Roman authority. To be a Christian in this community would cost you a lot. Choosing Jesus would mean that you're ostracized from your friends and your family. You'd be persecuted. People would refuse to do business with you. You would have run-ins with authorities. There would be this great shame over you, which in this honor culture would be devastating. You couldn't do anything. And so Paul is writing this letter. Actually, he's back in prison again. And he's writing this letter uh, uh, to a people who are experiencing these hardships. And the gospel that Jesus is Lord is why he's there. It's why he's in trouble. It's getting him into trouble with Roman authority because the Romans don't like this subversive, obstinate movement of radical cultists calling themselves Christians. And the Philippians, the hero of their faith, is facing this dire fate, which is causing them to question not only the future of their church, but the future of the gospel as a whole. And so Paul's writing from prison to this community who's really worried. And actually, their, their fears were not completely unprecedented because not long after this, Paul is thought to have been murdered in Rome. Martyred. Now, we aren't sure where Paul's writing from specifically. I mean, we know he's in prison. We don't know if he's in prison in Rome. Some people think he's in Ephesus. Either way, Roman prisons were rough. Prisoners did not get food. They didn't get blankets. They didn't get medicine. Nothing. So you were completely dependent upon what people would bring to you to survive. So the support from the church was really, really important. Okay. That was a lot of context and, and, and backdrop for the letter. Are you guys still with me? Are you with me? You're doing great. Okay. Let's dive in. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, 
I always pray with joy because of your partnership with the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from G- through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, it may seem like this is a lot of fluff, like that there's not a lot of substance in the opening of this letter, but that's actually not true. There is a ton of how kind of hidden in the what of this intro. So we're going we're gonna to break down six different hows that we can pull from this opening text, six different hows of living out the gospel. One, devote ourselves to one another like family. Now, right off the bat, we see that Paul is writing this letter with someone named Timothy. Timothy is probably helping him write the letter since Paul's in prison. Timothy was with Paul the first time that he visited Philippi. And Timothy was a close companion of Paul. Uh, He accompanied him on one of his missionary journeys, and he eventually went on to become the leader of the church in Ephesus. A big deal. Timothy, now, he's described in a lot of ways in regards to Paul in the scriptures. He's described as a fellow worker. He's described as a brother, a bondservant, a beloved, faithful child in the Lord. I like that one. And he's also called a son. He's called the son of Paul. Now, Timothy is not his biological son, but Paul to Timothy in many ways was a spiritual father. You know, during the relaunch of our men's ministries, uh, we decided to focus on the theme of fathers and sons. And the theme of the men's breakfast was on the parable of the two sons found in Luke chapter 15. And the reason is not because we wanted to be exclusive for men who only had biological children. Actually, quite the opposite. Here's what I mean. Something really fascinating that Jesus did during his three-year ministry was he reoriented the understanding of family to prioritize the family of the kingdom as what was paramount in our lives. One time he was actually teaching, and his family came and wanted to speak to him, and we can read about this encounter in, in Matthew chapter 12. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at his mom and his disciple John and he said, woman, here is your son. And he looked down at John and said, here is your mother. Jesus wanted us to carry one another like family regardless of our blood bonds, right? If we look at some of the most prominent leaders of the Christian movement, like Paul, Augustine, Jesus himself, these were single people. We see people who have no biological children, and yet they devote themselves to the church as if it were their family, because it is. We are invited by Jesus to live our lives for the sake of others, to pour out our affection and devotion to one another, So whether or not a Christian has biological children, all of us are called to become spiritual mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. All of us 
are called to carry one another as family under our Heavenly Father. One way or another, you are called to live sacrificially, to elevate others above yourself. So whether it be the sound of hyper-needy children or the soft voice of the Holy Spirit, the call to live for the sake of others should be what wakes us up in the morning. And I really do believe if the church in America is to survive, it will require that spiritual mothers and fathers seek out children of faith and that children of faith seek out spiritual mothers and fathers, that we bear one another's burdens, that we learn from each other, and that we learn to love one another. Because here's the thing, the culture is doing the best it can to generate lines of division between generations, between the young and the old. Can we not allow the enemy to succeed when it comes to Christ's church in this regard? Let's invite one another to coffee. Let's invite one another into our homes, into our work, into our struggles, into our pain and our victories and our goals. The church is supposed to be a family that's stronger than the bonds of blood. And here's the thing, no amount of programming can make that happen. So as we dream and as we pray about how to give you opportunities to make and forge these relationships, do know that it will take initiative from you, that you will need to seek out these relationships and pray, how do I live sacrificially for the people around me and family? Oh man, that was just like the first four words of this passage. We got to keep moving. Okay. The second how of living for Jesus, take on the posture of a servant. So Paul and Timothy, they give themselves the title of servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before, but this is the nature of our relationship with Jesus. The word here for servant is doulos, which actually more accurately translates as slave, which is really intense. But this is the posture of our relationship to Jesus. When we give ourselves to him, when we say yes to Jesus, we no longer live our lives as our own. Paul writes as a, as a, in a later letter in Galatians, he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, to someone who's hearing this for the first time, this might even seem mildly offensive. But this is actually the upside-down power dynamics of the kingdom. And this theme is present all throughout the letter, that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And what we find, surprisingly, when we relinquish our freedom to Jesus, when we offer ourselves truly to him, that's when we actually discover true freedom. And we find that Jesus not only receives us as his servants, but he calls us his friends, that he joins us in the trenches, serves alongside us, and even serves us himself. This is self-sacrificial love that he models for us so that we can embody it to others. And if this is jarring for us to hear, it would be even more jarring for the Philippians, because like we said, it's an honor culture. They would not understand why, in an honor-shame currency, that they would do this. Because in order to gain honor for myself, it means that someone else has to lose it. A slave was a bottom, was the bottom of the hierarchy for honor. And so Paul and Timothy addressing themselves as slaves deliberately would have been troubling. Because they would have been inclined to elevate Paul to a high honor status as one of the heroes of their faith. But Paul is subtly reminding them that he is but a servant of Jesus, just like you, just like me, just like them. When it comes to the kingdom, all of us are on equal footing around the cross. Next, trust in the power of the gospel, not in the personality of our leaders. Okay, here we go. He addresses the people of God as saints. 
or as some translations say, holy people of God. He's giving honor and dignity to the mundane and quote-unquote unexceptional people of the church, even so much as to call them holy, which is usually a title that's given to like heavenly beings, right? And he addresses the leader of the church, the leaders of the church and the deacons and the ministers, he addresses them second, because he's perpetuating this idea that, that they're servants of the people, that God exalts the humble. This is difficult for them, and it's difficult for us in our celebrity culture, right, that, to believe that what we're doing for the kingdom is actually honored by God, that it really matters, that my faithful day-to-day is valuable in the kingdom. You know, in Matthew 25, we read these well-known words in a parable about stewardship, where the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, well done, good and successful servant. Well done, popular and exceptional servant. No, the kingdom currency of God is goodness and faithfulness. Maybe we could do well to shift our mindset and to steward what God has given us well rather than coveting what God has given someone else, yeah? And Paul goes out of his way to address this small group of 40 frightened people as saints because he wants them to remember that the power of the gospel does not depend on charisma. It's built on faithful people. It's not built on star power. It's built on faithful people. Because the Philippians are worried about what will happen if they lose Paul. If we lose Paul, we'll lose everything. There's a, a teacher, a professor, and a, and a pastor named A.J. Swoboda. I have the honor and privilege of knowing him. He has spoken here several times. But he talked about on one of his podcasts this idea that we tend to make our pastors our popes, which I thought was fascinating. I never really thought about it that way before. Now, for better or for worse, our Catholic brothers and sisters, they believe that the pope carries a unique authority to speak on behalf of God. But because we don't have a pope in Foursquare, our denomination, or in really any other evangelical tradition, we have this habit of making our pastors our popes. Meaning that without realizing it, we start treating our pastors like they carry the voice of God. So when our pastors fail us, it wasn't a human who failed us. It was God himself. This is not good. (laughs) Now hear me. I experienced the draw of God on my life to be here and to pastor and serve this church. And I love it. And I feel that God has gifted me in unique ways to do this. However, my pastor's faith cannot take the place of my personal faith. My pastor's prayer life cannot take the place of my personal prayer life. My pastor's theology cannot take the place of my own theological journey. Otherwise, I'm not really living a life of faith in Jesus. I'm living a life in a cult with a really charismatic leader. When you break it down. <laughs> you know, many of my generational peers have gone beyond deconstruction and opted for dismantlement, and they've walked away from the faith altogether. But I don't think they walked away from Jesus. They walked away from leaders who misrepresented Jesus. And my question to those of you who have walked away from the church is, did you deconstruct your faith, or did you deconstruct the church? Because if you deconstructed your church, you should still be left with the power of the gospel found in your devotion to Jesus. But if you deconstructed the church, you deconstruct its leaders, and you're left without a faith, did you have a faith in the first place? I'm not God. I can't say that for you. 
But I would ask yourself that serious question, because did you know Jesus intimately or did you know the church intimately? Now, I'm not talking about Red Hills, the church. I'm talking about capital C, the church at large. Look, we've made a lot of mistakes collectively. We've missed the mark a lot because we're humans and we mess up. But despite every scar, every blemish, every imperfection, we are the beloved of God. That is the church. We're described as the bride of Christ. How can the body be divided against itself? How can I say that I hate what Jesus loves so deeply? You know, sometimes I feel like I'm in this museum and I'm looking at this painting and it's been mishandled. It's been torn. It's got graffiti on it. It's got burning around the edges. The frame is hanging off and people around me are looking at this painting and they're saying, wow, what an ugly painting. What a terrible piece of art. And I think, well, clearly you don't know the artist. Clearly you aren't familiar with their work. Because if you did, if you were, you'd know that what lies beneath the years of mismanagement is a masterpiece. Again, I'm not talking about Red Hills. I'm talking about the church. And so instead of walking away, I've chosen to devote my life to restoring and healing and taking care of this beautiful work which has been gifted to us by the master painter. Because beneath all of the scars, beneath all the warts, it is truly beautiful, and Jesus loves it, loves us. All that being said, the church, our faith, is not dependent upon the quality of our programs or the competency of our leaders. If it were, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> Listen, your role in the kingdom is way more important than you think. Like, I, I can teach from this platform, but will your coworkers know the love of Jesus if I crush it on a Sunday? No. <laughs> your coworkers will know the love of Jesus by the way you serve them. Do you think of yourself as one of God's holy people? Do you carry yourself like a saint of our faith? Here's the deal. You can, because it has absolutely nothing to do with how great you are and everything to do with the power of Christ's love in you. Trust in the power of the gospel, not the personality of our leaders. Next, generously give and receive grace and peace. We've already talked about this, but this is truly the heart of the entire series. Paul says, grace and peace to you. And if we look at this letter from the Apostle Paul, our letter, or this, this, our prayer, is that we learn to walk differently from the culture around us. That's our prayer. That we would experience delight that comes only from our God in and through us and that our relationships would be harmonious and free of rage. That's what we want. And listen, there are going to be many moments in our culture where that posture is put to the test. It will only be able to keep going if we abide in Christ. It's the only way. We take on his nature of grace and peace. And when we do that, we push back against this survivalism, tribalism, anxiety that's all around us. We pick up humility. We pick up grace and we pick up peace. Next, trust in the power of the gospel, not in the nature of our circumstances. In verses 4 through 6, he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Do you feel the confidence in this? For Paul, it's not even a question Will he finish it? He knows he will. We just sang this song, Blessed Assurance, right? 
It's this choice that we choose to put our trust in the truth that God presents to us. You know, Philippians is known as the joy epistle, which is hilarious, considering that Paul is suffering deeply in prison, and the Philippians are in the middle of a crisis, worrying about the fate of their movement. And it's called the joy epistle. You know why? Because Paul is trying to show them that the gift of perspective can change everything. That when your mindset is on the kingdom, there is literally nothing that can stand in the way of God's truth. And that perspective shift can allow you to endure anything. Nijay Gupta talks about this and he says, The gospel, despite our assumptions and fears, is unstoppable. It is like a rushing river, unimpeded by persecutors, chains, and even the death of its leaders. Paul's not worried. He knows that the Romans can throw everything they have at him because the truth of Jesus does not rely on him. Having his perspective is what gives the church the mindset to keep going. Thinking is a very strong theme in this book. We need to set our minds on the things of Christ, on the truth of Christ. We have to shift our perspective. How we think about things is very, very important. If we aren't careful, if we get into the wrong mindset, our circumstances will determine whether or not we experience joy. And Paul is writing to them, showing them that their ability to experience gratitude and trust in the gospel, this is a perspective shift that can get you through the most dire situations. And he's proving it by being in prison, facing unknown fate while he's writing it. The last point, don't compromise the way of love. Don't compromise the way of love. This is how this intro closes out. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. He's asking them, keep the way of Jesus, even if it feels easier to fight fire with fire, continue to grow in your knowledge of love and the fruit of Jesus. He didn't tell them to grow in the knowledge of political rebellion, grow in the knowledge of guerrilla warfare, grow in the knowledge of strategic growth. No, he says grow in love because Jesus is coming back for that. He uses the phrase the day of the Lord, which is this idea, it's kind of apocalyptic, this idea that Jesus was coming back to completely fulfill all the prophets in the Old Testament and establish his rule and reign completely on the earth. And because of this, there's this kind of sense of urgency in the gospel, but notice there's never a sense of like anxiety in the gospel. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that the apostles believed that Jesus would be returning in their lifetime. But this didn't seem to create a sense of rushing or hurriedness. It didn't carry an anxious energy. It carried a winsome, hopeful energy. He says that being pure and blameless is what God's looking for. And this is the idea that we don't stoop to the methods of empire when the way of the kingdom gets difficult. That's what pure and blameless means. It means we continue to walk in the way of Jesus, in the way of love, even when it gets difficult. Enduring in the gospel is a huge theme in Paul's writings and in this letter. Later on, he writes that famous passage that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. When he writes his letter to Timothy, he says, I have fought the good, worthy, and noble fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Endurance in the way of Jesus is difficult because it's always really tempting to take the low road. He says to grow in, a, in love, which the word here is agape. 
Agape is the kind of love that comes only from God. And he says that when we walk in agape, when we grow in our knowledge of love that comes from God, that's how we discern what to do. Always. We ask the question, is it loving? And is it loving in the way that God loves? He says, grow in the knowledge of. The Greek word for knowledge is experience. Grow in your experience of God's love so that you can share it with others. So Paul's prayer for the church is that they would personally experience what it is to love like Christ and be loved by Christ. And that's what will keep them going. That's what allows them to endure, to keep the way of agape, remembering how, the, how Christ endured in agape for their sake. He describes a harvest of righteousness, right? Because our work, our harvest is less noticeable than the world's harvest. It holds no status in the eyes of our culture, but the work of the gospel is that people would know the love of Jesus, that people would experience agape. Here's my final point. We are always going to be tempted to worship the church and its leaders or to bow down to the culture. Either of these perspectives, in either of these perspectives, the gospel is not worth any hardship it's going to bring to you. It's not worth it. But if we worship Jesus, there's this experiential knowledge of God's love and our place in the kingdom, which will empower us to endure literally anything. Because we aren't chasing the same things the world's chasing. Our gauges for success are not the same as the world's. We're not chasing our own glory, we're chasing the glory of God. Which is why we come to communion. You want to get your elements out? Left mine down here. After Advent, we decided to keep the table here. It had our Advent candles on it. And uh, I asked that we put communion elements on the table. And this is intentional. Communion. Christ sacrificed and resurrected. This is the center of gravity for everything that you will do in your life as a Christian. Every sermon that's preached from this pulpit, hopefully, God willing, any worship that we do, any prayer that we say, anything that you experience outside of these walls, the center of gravity is Christ crucified and resurrected for you, for us. When you ask the question, how do I keep going? How can I possibly endure? How can I continue to choose the way of agape, of self-sacrificial love? How can I keep doing this? It's beating me up. We remember how Christ endured how he took up agape for our sake, and he endured all the way to the cross. Perspective. Christ did it. Christ exhibited this kind of love, and when we take the elements of communion, when we receive this, we receive agape because we know that we are incapable of giving the world agape on our own power. We're not capable of loving and extending the grace and peace of God in our own understanding, but through Christ and Christ crucified, through his example of love and sacrifice, through the empowerment of the Spirit and the fruit that comes through abiding in Christ, we can do anything. We can endure anything. So let's open our elements together. Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my new covenant in, the, in my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
I'm going to invite the worship team up. Uh, we're going to sing, but first, let's pray together. If you want, you can hold your hands in a posture of receiving, like so. Jesus, we ask for your grace and for your peace. We ask that we would be given the strength to endure in your love. That we would be able to continually choose your way and not the world's. We ask that we would be a light. That the how of what we do would shine brightly. And that you would be glorified in it. Would our lives speak to what you have done for us? And may we give a glimmer of that hope to those around us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.